right. Well, uh, hey, good morning to everybody here. Uh, welcome to everybody who's jumping in online or later in the week or whatever. We're glad no matter how you're watching us that you're here participating with us um, and looking forward to what God has. A couple of quick housekeeping things. If you, <clears throat> uh, we have in front of you some uh, QR codes on that little squiggly deal and if you've been at Calvary for a while and you're like, you know what, I just want to learn how to engage in a certain minister, I need prayer, I have questions about baptism, um, or if maybe you're kind of newer to Calvary and you just want to know more about how to get connected and what that looks like, you can put your phone on there, don't take a picture, but that'll jump you to a uh, kind of a contact card where you can get some more information and let us know what we can help inform you of. And if you're online, there's a way you can jump on our website either right now or later and you can click a virtual contact card to get that information as well. So that's the first housekeeping thing. Second housekeeping thing is this, that this Thursday night, um, for those who are members of Calvary Church, we have a congregational meeting, kind of a business meeting. What we'll be talking about is the budget. This is very nerdy for folks who are like, dude, I don't care about this. But let me just give you a quick, quick 10-second thing. It'll be more than 10 seconds. Uh, one of the opportunities God has is to give, uh, as Christians, God gives us resources and then gives us the great privilege of sharing those resources to help care for people and support his work. And one of the privileges that our finance team and our leadership board has is for those who use your resources to support God's work here, we have the great opportunity to make sure we're wisely shepherding those in terms of a budget, right? We want to spend in faith and build in faith and try to increase ministries, but you also just want to be good stewards and don't want to spend more than you have. And so last at the end of last year, what we did is put a budget before the members to approve for January and February, and February is quickly running out. And so this coming Thursday, virtually, the finance team and elders will be putting another budget in front of the members to approve for the remainder of the year and explain the reasoning behind that. And so we'd love to invite uh, you to come to that if you're, you're part of the members of Calvary Church. And we're not keeping any secrets. Everybody can come to it virtually, but uh, members are the ones who would approve that or not. So want to let you know about that. We'll send it a link later. And third, most, uh, third housekeeping thing is this. Today is Valentine's Day. Now there is, wow. I don't really know why people are hooping and hollering. I can't interpret that. Does that mean like my husband finally gave me something or, he, guys, this is the deal, right? I'm doing you a favor right now. If this is the first time you remember today is Valentine's Day, this is what you do. Say, babe, I got to run to the restroom real quick. Get in your car, run to CVS and come back with like a Kit Kat bar or something, okay? To give to your wife or your, whoever you're with at the end of the service. Um, but Valentine's is a day that, we, we, you know, we do, we, whether you like it or not, it's a day in our society where we kind of carve out the date to express our love um, to people. And <clears throat> it's kind of a timely thing because this past week at Calvary, and I'm just warning you, I'm adding four or five minutes on to your time here today because I do want to share this with you. There have been this past week some incredible stories of the ways that people at Calvary have been loving each other. And I share that with you because this, if you've been at Calvary for a while, or maybe you're just checking Calvary out, it, if, if all you're doing is coming on the blue chairs or watching us virtually, the question really could be, like in a lot of churches, like, man, it just is so different. Is that church even still doing anything, right? Is anything going on? And the privilege I have in my seat is I get to hear all these stories from all our different ministries that you may not get to hear. And so I just want to share a couple things to um, just share how you, people at Calvary, have loved other people at Calvary uh, well. There is a couple who's retired who've had some health issues, and there's been a fall. One of them's fallen, which has caused some challenges. And so this past week, I heard how somebody at Calvary has 
taken their time and gone out of their way to just be the Uber for that person and help the other spouse get to doctor's appointments. And there was a lot of anxiety about COVID uh, vaccines and made sure that that person could get to their test, uh, you know, their, their vaccination appointment on time. A great story of somebody sacrificing and loving. In our women's ministry on throughout the week, there's about 90 ladies who gather together either virtually or online. In March, we're rolling out some things for us dudes. It'll be different than that because I don't know if you know this, but guys and girls are different. But we're going to roll out some ways for guys to engage and think about Jesus. But in our women's ministry, there's a person who's been kind of newer to Calvary. This is their first connection to Calvary. English is their second language. And there's a video-driven curriculum, and it's been challenging for this person to keep up because English is a second language. And so she spoke to one of the leaders, and the suggestion was made, well, you know what, if you have some trouble with the interpretation, maybe in your Zoom thing, just on the chat, just kind of pop up like I'm trying to figure this out. And she did that, and there was another lady in this group who is bilingual and speaks Spanish. And through chat, via Zoom, during a live virtual Bible study, this other lady has helped explain some of the interpretation and helped translate some things to answer questions so that this first lady could still engage and understand what's going on in a way that was easier for her than trying to keep up with a language with which she's not familiar. There was a young family who right before COVID had started to connect to Calvary and COVID changed a little bit, but they had a child, a young child who has some really significant uh, health situations. And so one of the parents knew that we had a prayer request form online through our website and they just kind of randomly submitted a prayer request online just for prayer as this child goes through their situation that's, that's very, very challenging and for support and encouragement. And, and our team and so many of you rallied in a way that I was so encouraged to see what's happening because our staff connected with this family quickly and we're able to give them some Grubhub gift certificates and then we passed on that information to some of our ministries and some of you who lead some teams. And a bunch of our people rallied together and this past week delivered a freezer full of food and meals and support and encouragement for this family. And that meant so much to them. And that happened because some of you took the time to respond to somebody who authentically shared what was going on in their life and a need that they had. And God's love was demonstrated. And I say that because, man, this time a couple years ago, we had uh, five, six hundred bodies in this place. We had hundreds of kids running around a week. It was a lot easier to see what's going on. And it's not as easy right now, but that doesn't mean that things aren't still going on. And our church is loving other people in our church in a way that honors Jesus. And I just wanted to thank you and encourage you and pass that on to you. And here's the deal. If you're not in a relationship with anybody else here at Calvary, there's no way for us to be able to care for you. And there's no way for you to be able to care for somebody else. And so I really encourage in this moment when we all have to figure out organically how to do things differently, to don't isolate yourself further and to take this moment in this season to get connected. It's going to look different than it would have last year, but it doesn't mean it still can't be as meaningful and perhaps even more meaningful. And so if there's any way we can serve you or help you or walk with you, we'd love to do that. And you can use that visitor card uh, to fill out and let us know that information. So we've now added a few minutes to the sermon, but on a day when we think about love, I just wanted to share some stories of how you have been loving other people around you here at this church. So thanks for doing that. And thanks to those who've received that love. Sometimes it's really hard when you're going through something to be honest and say, I need help. And so that takes a lot of courage, and I appreciate and admire those of you who've done that as well. Let me pray. We're going to jump into our series. Father, thank you for the way that you're 
Uh, still moving, and thank you for the way that you've given us the opportunity to care for one another well. And um, we pray that just we will live out lives that show people your love and your grace and your kindness in a moment when there's so much hostility and tension and conflict that surrounds us. Father, help us now as we press into your word to understand your word more, uh, but more importantly, to understand you more. And we trust the Holy Spirit to make that happen. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, if you've been with us, I think four weeks ago, we started off this brand new series, Walking Through the Old Testament. And what we usually do here at Calvary is pick a book of the Bible and walk through it, but we've decided we're going to pick half the book of the Bible and walk through that. We're not covering every verse or every chapter in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is kind of all the stuff before Matthew, right? There's a New Testament that starts with Matthew, and that's what happened after Jesus, and then the Old Testament is all about what happened before Jesus. And we're not going through every chapter, every verse of the Old Testament, but we are going through a bunch of the major events, a bunch of the major characters, a bunch of the major like themes and stories, and we're trying to see what bigger, larger story are they building. And so hopefully, right, some weeks we're going to be in theology, and it's going to be, you're going to be sitting here thinking like, dude, I feel like I'm in a Bible college. Like, what is going on? I need to go home and shovel snow. Other weeks it's going to be just really practical and applicable, and it's going to have a different kind of weight of that on different weeks. And if you you are interested in Christianity, you're a Christian. Hopefully we'll all walk away with a better understanding of how all the Old Testament fits together. I know that there's people who are watching or maybe here who are like, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Well, hey, this is an opportunity for you to at least press into what Christians believe and what the stories are and what story they're telling, which might be informative and at least helpful to you as you're weighing what you think spiritually and, and where you are spiritually. And so, in a few weeks, what we're going to do is have our first question and answer time <clears throat> at the end of a sermon. That is not, do not spend the next few weeks trying to find the most obscure thing in the Old Testament to ask to stump the pastor, right? Because I'll just tell you, I ain't got no clue what you're asking me, right? But the point of this is if there's something in a sermon, in a sermon, right, in one of the stories we've covered that you still have questions about, we want to create just an environment to engage us more differently during COVID. And we'll open up the floor in a couple of weeks and, and figure out what that all looks like. But this week, let's start by just kind of reviewing. We're a month or so into this, and let's think about where we've been and where we're going together. We started off where you start every beginning of the story. We start off in the beginning. And in the beginning of our time together, we started with Genesis chapter one on this little flowchart deal. We saw <clears throat> creation. And at the end of the creation account, at the end of the creation story, what we saw is that God looked out and he saw everything that he made and he said, it was very good. But then the very next chapter, Genesis 3, we saw that things got very, very bad very quickly, what theologians refer to as the fall, the story of people who thought that God was holding out on them and people who thought that they knew better than God and that if they wanted something good, they should do it their way. And so they did that. And in that moment, everything changed in the story. It went from very good to very bad. And there was conflict in relationships. The earth was cursed, right? Things were broken and defaced. But even in that, there was this promise that God made that one day there was going to be a seed. One day there was going to be a child born to a woman. And that child was going to be part of the story of fixing everything. Well, these first people had some children and it pretty quickly became clear that none of their children were the ones who were going to fix everything because they made a bigger mess. 
One brother killed another brother. There's conflict. There's tension. And then God looks down and Dan unpacked this story of Noah where he decided, okay, I'm going to kind of clear the decks and I'm going, to try to, try to, I'm going to try to give this thing another restart. And he preserved Noah and his family. And, and they kind of started over. But right away, it was clear that Noah and his sons weren't ones to fix everything because, man, Noah... This God, man of God, dude, he did some really, really stupid things in his story. And his kids did some really stupid things, and their kids did. And so once again, God looks down right about at this point in the story, and it's still this big mess. It's not the way it should be. It's not the way he intended it to be, because we thought we could control it better than God, and we didn't want to trust him. And God looks down and sees this mess, and he's got to figure out what to do. My... Family and I spent some time in Dallas, Texas, in Garland, Texas, actually. I was a little bit younger, a lot younger, and my kids were a lot younger. And we had this house there in Garland, Texas. And interesting thing about a lot of houses in Texas is the bottom floor was all tiled. It's totally cool if your house is tiled. That's awesome. I've just never seen that. The entire floor of our house was tile. You know what tile's like, right? It's hard. It's not soft. Tile. My, my kids and I one day were playing, and I don't know how we got this item, but probably one of my parents or my in-laws, they'd gone to Costco and for some present, they'd gotten my kids like this massive industrial side kit of beads. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of beads of different sizes. And you could make bracelets, you could make little designs, right? you could make necklaces. And so one day I was there with my little kids, they were toddlers, we were this, making these beads at a table and the tile floor was there. And then there came this moment. And I don't know who did it. I'm sure I did it because none of my angelic children ever would have done it. But we were winding down our last amazing necklace that we'd made together with this 50,000 you know, 50, piece industrial side bead kit. And somebody turned some way and then slow motion started. Right? Somebody hit the corner of this bead box and like the bounty commercial in slow motion, this box started to flip up in the air. And these beads start going. And I'm like, okay, and I don't know if you've ever seen about 15,000 beads from Costco fall on a tile floor. But you know what happens? They go everywhere. And I mean, in that moment, those beads landed on that floor and those beads just scattered everywhere. And then slow motion stopped. And I'm sure I like said a prayer with my child. (laughs) And I look down and there is this huge mess. I mean, I got to clean up the mess. And so you know what I did? This is what I did. I didn't get like a vacuum cleaner and clean them all up. I reached down and I picked up one bead and I started cleaning up the mess. Well, essentially one bead at a time. And that's exactly what God does in the story. Because he looks down here. And there's this huge mess that we've made of a world that he wants to be good. And he looks down and he says, I've got to clean up this mess. And so he reaches down and he starts with one person. 
He starts with one man to try to clean up the mess. And the person that he starts with is Abraham. And Chris unpacked that last week. And God made three promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to clean up this whole deal. And I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to do it by giving you some people, some kids. Because Abraham and his wife were old. They didn't have kids. I'm going to give you some kids. I'm going to give those kids some land. And right, there's going to be people. There's going to be land. And I'm going to bless you and bless your family and bless those people. And ultimately bless all people through you. People, land, blessing, this promise that God made to one man about how he's going to fix and clean up the mess. And Abraham, like Chris said, was this great man of faith. Throughout the Bible, he's referred to as this man of faith, this guy who was clinging to these three promises, this, this framework that's going to fix everything. But, but you know what? There's moments when even great people of faith sometimes are confronted with things in life that causes their faith to falter. There's moments when even great people of faith have frustrations and doubts and realities that weaken their faith. I have a flat roof, and in the wintertime, if I just let all the snow keep up there, you know what? That's not good. And so every big snowfall, I get up there on my flat roof and I shovel off the snow because if I keep it there, that snow weighing there over time is going to cause damage. It's going to cause ice dams. It's going to cause leaks in my roof. It's going to cause the roof to weaken by the weight of these 72 inches of snow that we have out there, right? And many times that's what happens with our faith. We allow different attitudes. We allow different perspectives. We allow different thoughts to weigh upon us. And we keep them there, and we keep them there, and we keep them there. And over time, that starts to weaken and damage our faith. That's what Abraham allowed to happen. So what does this have to do with Abraham? What it had to do with Abraham is we're going to see two different attitudes that Abraham had that over time started to cause his faith to weaken. And from each, we're going to pull a practical thing for you and me, and we're going to dig into some theology, okay? So here, here's where we're going to go. What's happening in Abraham's story? God's made him these promises. People, land, blessing, right? I'm going to give you a kid. That kid's going to have a kid. Eventually, there's going to be a nation from you. Abraham's waiting for that to happen. And so this is what we see in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 to 3. God comes to Abraham in verse 1. He says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. In other words, he's saying, Abraham, hold on. It's going to be good. And then this is what Abraham says to God. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord, my God, what are you going to give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Abram's looking around and like he, he, he has this promise from God that he and his wife are going to have a kid. He's got this relative running around who's not his kid. And what he says to God, it's really, really interesting. He's, look at the phrase. He says, God, in case you missed it, I continue childless. You, you haven't done it yet. You haven't come through, you haven't delivered on what you promised, you have given me no offspring, right? I continue childless. You have given me no offspring. What Abram started to do is this little, he's getting tired of waiting. And there's a little bit of this accusatory tone in his voice of, God, you're making me wait, and I'm getting sick of it, and I'm getting tired of it. You haven't done anything. He's a man of faith. 
But his faith in this moment is starting to weaken because like snow on my, on my roof, he's letting something weigh there on him. And here's the first attitude that can weaken my faith, it weakened his faith, it can weaken your faith. Here it is. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired <clears throat> of waiting. And the more you and I allow that perspective to weigh on our hearts, just like the snow on the roof over time is going to cause damage, that perspective can weaken and damage our faith. Because when we start thinking about how tired we are of waiting, why is God making me wait? I'm sick of it. I want it now. There becomes bitterness towards God. Or there can become doubt. Or we can yearn for escape because we're sick of waiting, all of which tends to weaken our faith. Sometimes what weakens our faith is this attitude of, I'm tired of waiting. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just been waiting on something? And here's what I know. I know, I know that some of you have. I know that there's something that some of you have been waiting for, and it's just been hard for you to wait. I know that all of us will face moments in our life when there's something we're going to be waiting for. And I bet that some of us right now, this morning, are waiting on something. Waiting. Waiting for God to answer a prayer. Waiting for some encouragement from God, some strength from God. Waiting for God to fix and bring restoration into a relationship. Maybe waiting on God because you know that there's another season. You know that you're at a crossroads. And you're just waiting on clarity about what that next step is. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. Have you ever been to the DMV? <clears throat> I know you have because you laughed, right? Man, the DMV, whenever I go down there to do anything, it's like, here, I, wa- I, I don't even understand that place. I walk in and ins- I got this line. I got to wait in a line to go stand in another line, to get a sticker, to get in that line, to go sit there, to get in that line. And the minute I walk in the door, you know what I start doing? I'm confessing this. I start like being a little critical, right? I start like, oh, what these guys need to do is if they did this, I start like organizationally restructuring the whole org chart. I start becoming like an industrial designer and restructuring the whole thing and I'm like what they need to do is this or if they did that that if they had you go there first and then over there or what and guess what I have criticisms I have suggestions I have all my grandiose ideas of how to fix everything it does not take one second off of my weight right I have all those frustrations I have all those critiques I have all those questions it don't make me get through the line any faster and you know what the reality is we have sometimes frustrations with God when we wait We have thoughts about how he could do it better sometimes when we wait. But that doesn't necessarily cause us to have to stop waiting any quicker. You and I cannot control God's timing. What we can control, though, is how we wait. We can't force God's hand. We can't control God's timing. What we can control is how we wait. And in moments when I wait, and this moments when I wait, you know what, I know that God is using that for something. And so I try to kind of work through some questions on my own. I wonder, okay, in this moment of waiting, how can I grow closer to God? 
how can I grow closer to God? What is there about me that has become too self-dependent or distant? And then I ask myself this other question, what is God trying to teach me? What do I need to learn? And I would just encourage you, if you're in a moment of waiting or when you come into a moment of waiting, that those might be helpful questions for you. Because for me, man, I I got a long way to go until I'm the person that Jesus wants me to be. And sometimes what God does is he puts me in a timeout. And he just makes me sit. And he makes me wait. Because that's how he takes the sandpaper and smooths off some things in my life that need to be smoothed. I hate waiting. If I could have an app for everything that would instantly give it to me in 0.7 seconds, I'm the happiest person ever. I don't even like going on websites anymore to pay my bills. Just give me an app. I hate waiting. But I know sometimes God has me wait because there's something that God needs to do in my life. And sometimes God has you wait because there's something that God needs to do in your life. You can't control God's timing, but you can control how you wait. And so here's the practical takeaway. When you get tired of waiting, surrender to waiting well. <clears throat> Don't, you can choose to fight it, but it's not going to speed anything up. You can wait poorly, but that's not going to end up well. Say to God, God, you've got me here. And I'm going to submit, and I'm going to surrender, and I want to wait well. So Abraham's getting a little bit impatient. Abraham wants this kid. Abraham's like, God, you haven't done it yet. So how does God respond to kind of where Abraham is? What does God do in the story, and what's the theological impact of that? Well, what God's going to do is he's going to say, okay, Abraham, I made you a promise, but but that promise doesn't seem to be good enough. And so Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a contract. I'm going to make a covenant with you, right? I'm going to give you a contract to assure you that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. In our culture, when, when I make a contract with you to buy your house, right, there's a certain way. Well, I'll, if, you, if you have tile floors, I may not buy your house. I'm just kidding. Tile floors are great, except when you have beads, right? When I make a contract with you to buy your house, there's a process we go through. There's forms. There's signatures. There's conditions. Sometimes there's witnesses. Sometimes there's notaries. It's got to be in writing, right? There's a way in our culture that we do something to make a contract through pen and paper and ink. In Abraham's culture, there was a way that people made a contract then, and it wasn't by calling lawyers to draw up a contract for them to sign to have witnessed. It was a little different. We're going to see the way that people in this culture made a contract. We start to see that in verses 9 through 10. So God says, Abraham, you're starting to freak out. I made you a promise, but now I'm going to give you a contract to doubly strengthen that promise. And here's what God tells Abraham to do. Bring me a heifer, three years old, verse 9 of chapter 15. A female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. Here's what's going on. In that culture, what you would do to make a contract, if I'm going to shovel your driveway, if I'm going to buy your house, if I'm going to paint your wall, and we're going to make a contract, what we're going to do in that culture, what they did is they took some animals. They cut those animals in half. They put one half over there. And they put one half over there. And then the two parties to the contract would hold hands. This is called like uh, ancient Near East or something treaty, okay? You'd hold hands. See, 
That was so rednecky. They hold hands, and then both parties together holding hands would walk between those split animals. And what they would be doing is saying, you and I together, this is the way we're pledging that I will do what I say I'm going to do and you will do what you're going to do. And if neither of us perform, the contract's going to be split like these animals are going to be split. The other doesn't have to perform. The contract's broken. And symbolically, it'd be like, dude, if I don't perform my end of the deal, may I symbolically be like these animals who are no longer any good and dead, right? They'd walk through this. That would be their pledge. That would be their pen to paper. And so what God says is, Abraham, I'm going to make the contract with you. We're going to do it in the way your culture. We're going to make a contract to some things. And the question is, in this moment, did they do it the way they would normally do things in their culture? Did both God somehow symbolically and Abraham both walk through the middle of these animals to both agree to do things? Well, no. What's interesting in this situation, only one party symbolically, walked through those animals. Let's see what happens. Genesis 15, verses 17 through 18. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire part and flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abraham's snoozing. Abraham's in a vision. And in that vision, what he sees is this flame and this fire part. That's the only thing that walked through the middle of the animals, which symbolizes God the only party to the contract walking through the middle of those animals, pledging to do things while Abraham is not necessarily having to pledge to agree anything. Now, some of you are thinking, it was a little cold out this morning. It was a little icy out this morning. <clears throat> I came to church. Why, okay, that, why in the world, Smith, are you talking about whether who walked through these animals that are split? Like, who cares? Why does that matter? Okay, here's why it matters. Because it raises the question of, in order for God to give Abraham people, land, blessing, is God saying that he's, is that an unconditional contract where God is saying, I'm going to do that, Abraham, no matter what you do, even if you don't do anything right, even if you mess up, even if you're a knucklehead, I'm still going to perform the contract. Or <clears throat> is it a contract where God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you land people blessing if you perform your end of the contract. And if you don't perform your end of the contract, I don't need to perform my end of the contract. Were both people pledged to this contract or was it only God because only God walked through the middle of it? That matters whether it was a conditional or unconditional contract for Abraham. Some of you are now thinking, okay, I didn't really understand why it mattered whether they walked through the middle of the animals. Now, why? Who cares whether it's a conditional contract or unconditional contract? Why does that matter? Here's why that matters. And this matters because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God is going to make all sorts of promises to the Jewish people and to the Israelite people about what's in store for them at the end of the story, right? He's going to make all sorts of promises in Isaiah, in the prophets, about at the end of the story, at the end times, right? The book of Revelation promises to Israel about their part in the story. And the question is this. Here's kind of the issue that's teed up. Will Israel receive one day all that was promised or... 
Did their disobedience breach the contract? And does the church now replace Israel in that promise? Here's why that matters. You can't understand the book of Revelation. You can't understand Isaiah. You can't understand all the charts and graphs and those weird movies with Kirk Cameron about the end of the world unless you understand this part of the Bible. If you don't understand whether this was a conditional contract that God will only fulfill his end of the bargain if Abraham performs or whether God's going to do it regardless of whether Abraham performs, we won't be able to understand all that stuff about, man, what does the future look like? How do we read all these verses about the kingdom of God and land and Israel and they're going to rule with Jesus? Like, is that still going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Okay, ready? If you had gotten a cup of free coffee from Calvary, right now I would say to you, everybody pick up your free coffee and you chug it as fast as you can for this quick caffeine burst. We are digging, we are jumping off the dive boat to about to go theological like a 40,000 depth under the ocean. You ready? I'm going to say a word. It's not a bad word. I'm going to say a theological word that in all of my years of giving sermons, I don't think I've ever said, okay? Because... There are two different branches of theology that answer this question differently. Here's why I'm telling you this. We're not going to fix it today. I'm not trying to persuade you something today, but here's what I do want. I want one day, if you're reading a book or in another sermon or listening to a podcast, and you hear somebody talking about end times and a thousand-year reign, and they're going to get the land, and not, I want you just to have a context about the theology and the larger questions that are out there, Okay. Here's the word I've not said. It's not a bad word. Dispensationalists. Woo, somebody like just had some agita. Dispensationalists versus covenant theologians. Remember I said some weeks are going to be theological. Don't worry. There's going to be other weeks that are going to be practical and good. Okay. These two different camps of theology spring from their understanding of whether this contract is conditional or unconditional. If you are well-versed in this, what I'm about to say, you're going to be like, Peter, you didn't really hit it accurately. You're right. Okay, I'm leaving so much out. I'm giving like a teeny tiny dispensationalism for normal people coming to theology. But here's how these two camps read things. Dispensationalist. They believe, you can pop the slide, uh, somebody in the dispensational camps, they think that God's promises to Abraham, people and blessing, are absolutely unconditional. God's going to perform it and do it no matter what Abraham and his heirs do and the Israelites do, which means that in the future, what God promised to do for Israel and give to Israel, if they have not yet received it, there is a unique future role for them in God's kingdom. Okay, and then that means this, that Israel and the church, which is made up of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, have two different kind of roles, all right? I know, I know, I know. Just drink some coffee. It's going to be okay. That the church does not spiritually replace Israel. Covenant theologians believe just the opposite. They believe that God's promises to Abraham were conditional, that if Abraham breached the contract or his heirs breached the contract, then God didn't have to perform, which means that they think that Abraham and his heirs pretty quickly breached the contract, which means that Israel is no longer a party of the promises, which means that every promise that God made to Israel, now we as the church jump into Israel's place and we receive instead of them, which means... When you read some of those promises, what a covenant theologian will say, okay, God, we don't read it anymore as like Israel's actually going to 
be in this boundary of land for a thousand years, what we need to do is like read that spiritually. And how do we spiritually interpret that to apply to the church? There are godly Christians, wise Christians in both sides of this. It is a good thing that in the 50s and 60s and 70s there wasn't Twitter. Because if you think what's going on today between like Yankees fans and Red Sox fans or Dunkin' Donuts drinkers or Starbucks drinkers or even in politics, man, back in the day, this was such a big deal. And churches were splitting over this. Christians were saying that the other brother or sister in Christ is a dispensation was said, well, that person can't be a Christian because they're a covenant theologian. Covenant theologian, they it was ugly. And here's what you need to know. There's Christians on both sides because there's Bible verses to support both sides. I personally happen to lean more in the dispensational camp. I think that when God walked through this, God was saying, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do no matter what Abraham does. But you don't have to believe that, right? And there's lots of people who don't. I'm just setting this out to you because I do want us to know that the Old Testament connects to the New Testament. And if we don't understand what God said to Abraham, we're never going to understand the book of Revelation. And God's promises to Abraham really lay the foundwork, the foundwork, the foundation and groundwork. They lay the foundation and groundwork for not only the Old Testament, but for two very different theological systems that I just want to kind of start to get in our brain. Okay. God, regardless of how you interpret it, God clearly entered into some sort of contract with Abraham. And the question is now this, that God has promised to give Abraham certain things. Then God said, Abraham, here's your contract. I'm going to do these things for you. And you think that after being promised something and God giving you a contract, you'd be like, okay, I'm actually going to trust God. Right? I'm actually going to wait on God. Is that what Abram does? Well, no, he doesn't. But that's not what I always do. Because God gives me certain promises and certain things, and I don't always wait on him. Once again, Abraham's faith gets tired of waiting as he has this other perspective, and we see this happen in chapter 16. God's made the contract with him. He's just kind of ratified it, right? And then we see this. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Still no kids for Abraham and Sarah. So do they say to themselves, you know what, hon? Man, look, God promised it to us. God gave us a contract. Let's just wait. Let's just trust him. Is that what they do? No. That's not what they do. They come up with their own plan. They come up with their own ideas. And we read that in the next verse. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, now remember, God's plan is for Abraham and Sarah to have them a baby. That's his plan. That's his will. That's his purposes. Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. That phrase, gave her as a wife. Wife is a very... Uh, vanilla translation of what the situation really is going on here, okay? And he took and he went into Hagar and she conceived. 
And then jumping down, we see in verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Right? Abram and Sarah are the one that God has a purpose to the plan, but they are tired of waiting. And so you know what they say to themselves? They say to themselves, you know what? There's an outcome we want. There's something we want to get. And we're actually going to be more effective at making this happen than God. Because I'm tired of waiting for God to show up. So I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it through my means. I'm going to do it through my wisdom. I'm going to do it according to my plan. And you know what? Do you think it makes things any better? No. And some of us know it doesn't make things any better because that's how some of us have lived so much of our life. Not willing to wait on God and trust him and instead constantly trying to play God over our own lives, make it a mess. And it makes a mess in this situation. Verse 4, we see what happens. So Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on Sarah, her mistress. She's like, man, I got me a baby now. I'm, I'm hooked up with Abraham. We don't need this other lady running around. She couldn't have kids. She's worthless. Me and old boy had our hookup. We're good. And then the shoe went the other way because then Sarah had some tension. And we see this in verse 6, right? Then Sarah, at the end of verse 6, dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So there's conflict in the house now. There's tension in the house now. You got this single mom and her kid who take off. These two ladies who hate each other. Abram, all because they weren't willing just to wait. And to trust the God who had made promises and a contract. Here's the second attitude that can weaken faith. Here it is. That I can come up with a better plan than God. When, we allow th- when we're waiting and we allow this to weigh on us, because we're sick of waiting and I can do better than God and I can do better than God and I can do better than God, that thought is actually going to at some point weaken our faith and we're going to try to do it our way. And it may work out well because God has grace and even when we screw everything up, he still has grace or could make everything a lot worse. And here's the practical challenge. When you think that you can do better than God, run from self-reliance and run more deeply and dependently on God. How does God respond? Well, God ends up keeping his promise. Verse 21, God does what he promised to do. God shows up. God cares for them. God fulfills his plans and his purposes for their life. Chapter 21, verse 1 to 3. I love some of the language in here. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Those words are there purposely because what they're showing is this. Look, God did what he said he was going to do. God's promise came true. God showed up for them. God didn't give up on them, but God did it in his timing. And God did it in his way. God does fulfill his promise, but he does it according to his plan and according to his time. And maybe some of us just need to run more deeply to him, even though his timing isn't what our timing would be. And even though his plan doesn't seem to be what our plan is. 
but just to trust him instead of thinking that we can figure it out and fix it better than he can. So what's the theological significance of this? Two more minutes and then we're going to sing and we're done. Why does this matter? Well, we now have two boys. We got Ishmael and we got Isaac. And if you're a fan of the West Wing, you know why this matters. Because there's a West Wing episode called Ishmael and Isaac. And here's some snapshots of both of them, right? Isaac. Isaac, we see this in Genesis a little early on. This is what God's saying. Look, Sarah's going to have a child. You shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting. Here's what God's saying. Abraham, all of my promises to you are going to flow through Isaac's family tree. And so what we see with Isaac is this, that God's promises to Isaac flow through his family tree, that the Jewish people, the Israel people, are going to trace their right to the land to the land of Israel. They're going to trace it back through Isaac's family tree. People fighting today over land, blowing each up over people's land. The Jewish people are claiming that land because they're descendants of Isaac to whom that promise came. Through Isaac's family tree, we're going to see the promise of that seed come. Way back in Genesis 3, when God said, I'm going to send a baby who's going to a woman who's going to make everything right, that is going to flow through his family tree. And here's why that's important, because you know who's related to Isaac? Jesus. Jesus. Matthew 1 is the family tree of Jesus. You know who his great, 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 maybe great grandfather was? Isaac. Isaac. But there's another boy out there, Ishmael. And, and the first couple things we can't say with certainty, but there are some scholars that suggest that the Arabs descended from Ishmael. Like I said, the evidence isn't certain. There's debate on it. It's noteworthy. There's a, a strong belief in the Muslim tradition than scholars, not with absolute certainty, but that suggests that Muhammad, that the prophet Muhammad descended from Ishmael, right? There's a lot more strength in Muslim traditions that uh, Ishmael is the one who founded Mecca, right? What we do know in the Bible is this, that the Ishmaelites, that Ishmael and his people and his group and his tribe became kind of migrant traders. They kind of had like a roving eBay store and they'd ride on camels and they'd go around and they'd sell things and buy things through these caravans. Later on, what we're going to see in a few stories is this dude named Joseph. Brothers are jealous of Joseph. And so the brothers sell Joseph to another group of people. You know who they sell him to? They sell him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites were the roving caravan of traders who bought Joseph. We'll talk about that later. And in Psalms, what we start to see happen is that these people slowly start to become a threat to Isaac's relatives, a threat to the Israelite people. And you see that later on in Psalms where the psalmist is praying for protection as a Jewish Israelite related to Isaac against the threat posed by the Ishmaelites as well as other people. Two different brothers, two different family trees two different stories, and at one point we know with certainty that the descendants of each family tree are in some sort of conflict with some sort of threat. Covered a lot today, tons today. And for those of you who dig theology, I'd be happy to talk to you more about covenant theology and dispensationalism. For those of you who want something more practical, <clears throat> maybe what you get today is that 
you're just waiting. And God had you here today to try to give you some truth and some encouragement to keep trusting him, to wait well. Don't give up. Don't think you can do it better than him. See what he's got to teach you. Let him do what he wants to do in you. And trust him to fulfill his purposes in your life. Next week, we're going to keep pressing into the family tree of Isaac and see what stories are there and what themes are built. Love for you to join us, whether in person or online. But let me pray. We'll sing and then run to get your Valentine's present if you haven't done it already. Father, I pray that for those of us who are waiting, that our waiting on you won't cause us to doubt your character, that we will be reminded of your love for us, that we will have your encouragement. For those of us, Lord, who are just thinking about faith, I pray that you'll um, help us to leave here at least learning a little more about the Old Testament and knowledge about it. So we kind of track the story of how you're trying to fix everything. And we're grateful, Father, that the promise every, that one day all will be well, that there will be no more conflict, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more broken marriages, but we'll be worshiping you <clears throat> in a world the way that you want it to be. And so, Father, may we wait well even for that day. Amen.